I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel. That's a joke, come on. <laughs> we are turning to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's 986. It should be page 986. Uh, we're going to begin a study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, and uh, and I, a couple of weeks ago, I started thinking about what my next series was going to be, and I kind of landed on 1 Thessalonians. And, and I told some folks, I said, why are we going to study 1 Thessalonians? What's the point? What's the main reason why? And, and quite honestly, the main reason why I wanted to study 1 Thessalonians is because none of you have ever heard a series on 1 Thessalonians before. I can almost guarantee that. Show of hands. How many of you have heard an entire series on the book of 1 Thessalonians, right? Right, because pastors overlook this book. There's not a whole lot in here that you would think is exciting and fun. Uh, And so what I wanted to do is to kind of take our flashlights and and kind of go through the Bible and look at one of the dark corners of the Bible that you never go to and never see. Uh, Now, 1 Thessalonians has a lot of verses that you'll hear, um, and so... Some really important verses come out of it, and one really important verse that you will hear at almost every single uh, funeral that you attend, but as an entire series, we just don't hear it very much. Uh, And that's a shame, because this is a magnificent book of encouragement. Uh, It's an incredible book that is an encouragement for God's people, and I'm hopeful that for us, as we look at it over the next few weeks, that it will be encouraging to us. Let me give you just a little bit of background about this book before we dive into it. Um, This is one of Paul's first letters, if not the very first letter that Paul the Apostle wrote. It would have been around A.D. 50 or 50 A.D. It was uh, in the midst of his second missionary journey. And you can read about the, the events of this book or the events, the circumstances surrounding the writing of this in Acts chapter 17. Uh, The writer Luke records the events surrounding that and everything that was going on. Uh, and, and essentially what you learn in that book or in that chapter is that the Apostle Paul had gone to Thessalonica and he had preached the gospel for three weeks in the synagogue. That's what he typically did. He would go to the Jews. He would preach the good news to the Jews. They would get mad. They would run him out. And then he would go preach to the Gentiles. So he did that for three weeks. One more week he was there. And then great persecution arose, and they began to arrest. They arrested him and Timothy and Silas. They arrested another man named Jason, who was a convert to Christianity, and all sorts of things happened. But severe persecution arose because of the gospel, and Paul, Timothy, and Silas had to leave this church plant after one month. After one month, they had to leave. So from Athens, that's where Paul went, He sends Timothy back after a few months to Thessalonica to check on the church, assuming that after they left, they had just rejected Christ, they had left the faith. That's what he expected to find. Because persecution, death, all these things came up. He said, you know what, they're not going to hold to the gospel any longer. It's just going to be too hard. And he maybe would have thought, if we could have stayed just a little bit longer than a month, we could have really firmly uh, uh, cemented them in the gospel. But, but maybe Timothy, I'll just send him and he'll come back with a report. And that is where we pick up with this, uh, with this book or this letter today. So uh, let me begin and I'm going to read all of chapter 1 through verse 10. 
This is God's good and kind and gracious word to you today. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for self and understanding. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today, and we pray that you would help us to understand the good news from this passage, that we would see in glory in your son Jesus Christ, even as the Thessalonians did 2,000 years ago. We pray this in Christ's name. So I want to look at this passage in three ways. Uh, first of all, we're going to see Paul's prayer. Secondly, Paul's perception. And then thirdly, Paul's pride. So we begin with Paul's prayer. And we see that essentially in verses 1, uh, one through 3. Paul's prayer. Um, there's a sense in which when you go through and you read the epistles or the letters of the Apostle Paul, uh, that you could call them not necessarily letters, but prayers. Because Paul wrote in a prayerful way. Um, Paul's letters are first and foremost prayers. Um, Now, saying that doesn't mean, if you think about Paul's letters, you'll think about them as theological treatises. And you'll think about them as as incredibly uh, uh, applicable. They they give a lot of instruction. There's a lot of wisdom and those sorts of things. And, And they are really highly theological. And they are really highly practical and useful for us. But that's what our prayer should be as well. Prayer, uh, prayer isn't something that's, that's just uh, out there in the ether that just floats around that, that causes us to be above and rise above everything. No, prayers are meant to be highly theological. And indeed, the more theological you are, the better your prayer life is going to be. Um, and they're to be incredibly practical. So Paul prays in this uh, book. Um, it's really around two different prayers that he prays. And we're looking to look at the first part of one of those prayers today. Paul is, and, and here's the height of prayer. Here, here's the, the highest expression of prayer. The highest expression of prayer isn't asking for things, but it's an attitude toward God. And you see that attitude toward God in how Paul prays. Look at what he says in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly or continually mentioning you in our prayers. That's the height of prayer. Thankfulness. Thankfulness. 
And what you understand as you read through this passage that Paul has a lot to be thankful for. Remember, he had sent Timothy back thinking that he wasn't going to find anything there that the people would have rejected Christ because of the, the persecution. And what does he find? Timothy comes back amazed at what he finds. He finds a church full of young Christians that aren't just surviving the persecution, but are actually thriving in the midst of it. So Paul is incredibly thankful for that because these young Christians are growing in Christ. They are thriving. And how are they thriving? How are these young Christians thriving? What does he say? In verse 3 he says, We're remembering before our God and Father your first thing, work of the faith. Secondly, labor of love. And thirdly, steadfastness of hope. Faith, hope, and love. These are kind of the cornerstones of Paul's writings. And and whenever he looks for the marks of a Christian, he's looking for these three things. Faith, hope, and love. And he says, "When, when I've heard the report from Timothy about what you're like, I see the evidence of your faith. And he says it's a work of faith. And as the first thing... The work of faith, that makes Protestant evangelicals very nervous because we think faith and work are not supposed to be together. Faith is one thing, work is something else, and we don't put those things together. But here, the Apostle Paul says, your work of faith. That's an important distinction, an important thing that he's saying. He's saying, you have faith in Jesus, and because you have faith in Jesus, you put it to work. He isn't saying you're saved by your works. But because you have faith in Jesus, you then work. Uh, that's that's an, an important application for us as Christians. If you have faith, your faith is going to work. It's going to do things. So that's the first thing he says. You have a, the work of faith because your faith is producing good works. Secondly, your labor of love. Your labor of, uh, labor of love. Paul uses this word a couple times in his, in his um, letters. And, and it's a word that he uses over and over in this one. And he wants to get the point across that he had to work really hard among the, the Thessalonians. Uh, in verse 9 he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. And, and that word labor kind of means drudgery. But look, he says the evidence of what Christ has done. And he's thankful for this that they have been um, toiling or laboring, uh, laboring in love. Here's what that means. Uh, Day-to-day painful drudgery, facing persecution, facing evil intent from people outside of the church. And what do these people do? In their labor, in their drudgery, what do they do? Well, they actually turn the other cheek to their enemies. As they are being persecuted, they love their enemies. That's a good mark of a Christian, isn't it? So Paul is thankful. He sees their faith and their love. And then finally he sees the steadfastness of their hope. Uh, This is that idea of the keel that that keeps the boat upright, the thing that goes down, that's heavy, that's weighted, that keeps the boat from tossing back and forth. That's the idea of the steadfastness. He says they are fixed on something and they have hope because of this thing. What is their hope? Well, they are firmly established in Jesus Christ. They aren't going to be tossed back and forth. And that's the the important thing that Paul wants them to see. They have hope in him. And what do they have hope in? Interestingly enough, they are hoping in Christ's return. 
They were fixed on Christ. They were fixed on Him. And it, there's an important distinction, I think, for us. We, very often you'll meet people that are very fixed on the circumstances surrounding the second coming of Christ. On all of the events surrounding that. And whenever Christians talk about the second coming of Christ, they will focus on those events and, and maybe the scary things that are going to happen surrounding that. But more important than focusing on the circumstances surrounding the second coming, coming of Christ is focusing on the fact that Christ is coming back. He will return. It's focusing on Christ himself, and that's an important thing. Um, they, were, they looked to Christ. They focused on him, and nothing else was going to distract him. Uh, one of the times that I was able to go sailing, uh, I, I was on the boat, and uh, the captain decided that we were going to go around the outside of the islands that we were sailing around. Typically, we were on, the, on a strait that was very calm and very safe, and he said, we're going to go around the outside of the islands where, where the waters kind of got a little bit choppier. And we were in four to five foot swells, and I remember everything was going really good, and I was like, man, this is cool, because that boat, sh- and then it hit. And I was going to puke my guts out unless I got off that boat. And I remember, you know, the captain looked at me and he said, Kelly, he said, you're about to puke. I said, yeah, I know I'm about to puke. He said, find something in the distance and look at it and stay looking at it. And I did. I kept my eyes on that one point just so I wouldn't puke. I was fixed on it. And I knew if I moved my head to the left or to the right, if I stopped being fixed on that one point, I was going to lose my lunch. That's what these people were. They were so fixed on Christ. They weren't going to They weren't gonna lo- be moved to the left or to the right at all. They were fixed. And, and Paul is thankful for that. So what's, what's the application to us? What about you? What's the evidence in your life? What are the marks of Christ in your life? Think about this. What if I were arrested? What if I were arrested and put in jail for six months because I preached the gospel? It would be great to have that honor. (laughs) That happens in China every single day. Ministers of the gospel are arrested and and taken away from their congregation. Let's say I was released and I came back. What would I find here in this church? Would I find steadfastness of hope? Would you be fixed to this church in the midst, uh, or fixed to Christ in the midst of this, uh, in the midst of persecution? Would you have the labor of love? Would you turn the other cheek to the enemies? Of Christ, And would there be the work of faith? Would good works remain in you? And I'm not asking for you to look around and say, well, that person certainly would reject and leave. No, what about you? See, that's the question that I have to ask about myself. What if I were arrested for the sake of the gospel? Would, I, would these three things be found in me? That's an important question for, for you to ask, for me to ask of myself. Paul is thankful because in the Thessalonians he sees those things. Uh, the second thing we see is Paul's perception in verses 4 through 7. Um, here's what I want. Paul speaks in a way that we do not dare speak. speak. Uh, we just don't speak this way. Look at what he says. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. We know that he has chosen you. He speaks with absolute certainty, with no qualification. 
I found myself speaking this way, that every time I speak, well, let me say it like this, almost every time that I speak, I make a qualification because I don't want to commit to anything and I don't want to be just have my words thrown back on me. We're all like that. We, we act like lawyers and we try to get our words just right so that people can't hold us to things and I always want to qualify things almost always because there's a qualification for it, right? So we don't speak in certainty, but here's what Paul says. He says he knows with absolute certainty that nothing is going to change this, that they are Christians. I mean, you don't even dare speak that way about yourself, right? That's too scary to think about. It's, it, it sounds so, um, so arrogant to say that, but Paul says that about these people. How can he speak with such certainty? How can he tell them that he knows that they are, they are Christians and there's no doubt that they have been chosen by God, that they are one of his elect, that there's no doubt that they will be in heaven Forever and ever and ever, living into eternity with Jesus Christ. How can he say that? Well, he actually tells us how he can say that. He, he says, look, there, the evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit whenever he preached the gospel, the Holy Spirit showed up when he preached and he converted them. That's the first thing. That's kind of the most important thing. The Holy Spirit showed up and people were converted. But then secondly, he says, for we know, brother, or he says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also secondly, um, uh, you know, I'm sorry, um, verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So the second reason why he says is because they received the good news and they became imitators of the apostles. They imitated Paul by receiving the word through affliction and they had joy. They had affliction and they had joy because they, had, they received the word through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the third thing that they did is, so that, verse 7, so that they became a model or a type or an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They became model Christians to the rest of the people in the region. Paul says, I know that you were converted because the power of the Holy Spirit, first of all. Secondly, because you imitated me by taking on the gospel and having joy through the persecution. And then thirdly, you begin to model what it meant to be a Christian to everyone else. These young Christians acted like Christians. Now, in that, I want you to understand something, that you can have that kind of certainty about you being a Christian. You know that? You can have assurance of salvation. There are some brands of Christianity, some groups that say, no, you can't have that. But no, Paul says, I know, and he says to the Thessalonians, I know that you're a Christian as well. How can you have that kind of assurance of salvation? How can you know that you are one of God's elect? Well, it's really quite simple. You imitate the apostles, having joy and affliction, and you live a life that is an, an example to other Christians. Now, I have to be careful here because what you may have just heard me say is, that if you do those things, you will have salvation. If you imitate the apostles and have joy, and you are, an exam uh, are uh, uh, a good Christian, then you can have salvation. That's not what I said. What I said was, and what Paul says is, you can know you're a Christian and are one of the elect if you imitate the apostles and you, um, and you leave a life, life of example to other Christians, or you leave a good, lead a good Christian life. But you have salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. But you can know that you're a Christian and are one of the elect by those two things. There's a big difference between that. 
You forfeit your assurance in Christ if you aren't imitating the apostles. You forfeit your assurance in Christ or your assurance of salvation if you are not leading a good Christian life. But that does not mean you forfeit your salvation. It may mean that you never were a Christian at all if you aren't doing those two things. So what about you? Now, in this, you might be hearing me say, well, I have to imitate the apostles. I have to be perfect all the time. I have to be like Paul and like James and like Peter. Let me just remind you, they were massive sinners who did terrible things. Uh, Peter was a racist, okay? And, And he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying you have to be perfect. But whenever you are confronted with your sin, you recognize it. You say, yeah, that's who I am. What does it mean to be a Christian? I had uh, one of my mentors, Dan Simonis, who I worked with. He, had, he was a former pastor. And he said, Kelly, at some point he knew that I wanted to be a pastor when I was about 21. And he said, Kelly, at some point you're going to sit in a room with other people. And you're going to sit with the elders. And you're going to hear them giving their testimony. And you're going to have to figure out whether or not they are a true believer in Jesus Christ. And at 21, he said, Kelly, how are you going to do that? And I was like, well, maybe, maybe it's because of how much they know. And he goes, Satan knows everything there is to know about Jesus. People can fool you with their knowledge. That doesn't mean they're a Christian. How are you going to decide whether or not a person should join Christ's church or not? I thought, oh, this is hard. He goes, yeah, this is the hardest thing you're going to have to do. And he said, and I'll never forget this. He says, there's three things that you can look for in the lives of God's people. Thankfulness. Are they appreciative of who they are in Christ. Secondly, are they humble? Are they humble? And then thirdly, are they teachable? That's the definition of what it means to be a Christian. Thankful, humble, teachable. Not arrogant, not not trusting yourself, thinking that you've done it. Not thinking that you have made your own way, but trusting because Christ has made the way for you. Are you teachable? I think this is a really important one. Do you think you have it all figured out already? (laughs) Do you think that you are God's gift to the church and to Christianity, that you've got it figured out? Or are you willing to sit under the authority of others who also don't have it figured out, by the way? (laughs) Are you teachable? And are you thankful? I mean, you know what thankfulness looks like. This Wednesday, we took Alexander trick-or-treating, and, you know, we sent him to the door, And trick-or-treat, he got that part. He understood that part. Trick-or-treat, trick-or-treat. He'd get his candy and he'd run away. And Amy and I would say, say thank you. And he would, as he was running away, thank you. All right? Thankfulness, right? Just Just a small little thing. Do you appreciate the things you have and who you are by God's grace? I think those are three important things for us to look at. What about you? You can make your calling sure. You can have assurance of salvation through those things. Thankfulness, humility, and teachableness. Finally, I want you to see Paul's pride here in verses 8 through 10. Paul's pride. He had pride about these Thessalonians. Pride is not a bad thing. Pride can be a very good thing. What was he proud of? He wasn't proud in himself are are happy with himself, he was thankful and proud of the fact that God had used used him to do something amazing in the lives of the Thessalonians. What was he proud of? He was proud because the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, was spreading throughout all this region because of the Thessalonians. 
He was very thankful for that. Just because of who they were and what they believed, the word of God was spreading. And then he says that, um, well, look at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. He says the reality is, is that your faith is proof of the truth of the gospel message. Your faith is proof of the good news of Jesus Christ. What you believe And your actions that flow from that are proof to the world around you that the gospel is true. And that's what he says. Because these Thessalonians acted a certain way and believed a certain way, everyone else was hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul was overjoyed by that. Because your life and the way that you live your life absolutely matters. And that's one of the big themes of this book. And you'll see that starting in in chapter 4. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. Um, don't laugh at that. We will get there in a couple weeks. I'm doing a whole chapter in one day, so just, there you go. Okay. Um, thirdly, this is a subtle thing, but he says, you know, it's an exciting thing that your faith proves the gospel's truth because Paul had to everywhere he go prove his authority to preach and proclaim the gospel. And he says, because of your faith, people are more willing to listen to the good news. They're more willing to listen to Paul. Isn't that an amazing thing? If you are a member or, or, or someone that visits, visits Faith Presbyterian Church and you talk about the fact that you come here, um, people are looking at your life and seeing how you live your life. And they want to know whether or not I am someone that should be listened to. Do you believe that? <laughs> your life and the way that you live your life will change whether or not an individual will hear the gospel or not. Paul says because of the way they live their lives, other people were willing to hear the good news. That's an important thing. And then he says uh, in verse nine, nine and, verses 9 and 10, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. That makes him proud. Real change was happening. They were leaving their idolatries behind. And that would have been incredibly hard to do. Uh, there were things like temple prostitution and cultural things that they had to do as, as uh, citizens of Rome that, that were forbidden, that Christians should not do. And they were leaving those things in order to turn to Christ. And Paul says there's real transformation that's happening. And he's proud of that. He's also proud of the fact that they become, and listen to this, self-consciously theological. Self-consciously theological. These young Christians who did, had probably not even heard of Jesus before six months before this, all of a sudden could not stop thinking about Jesus. And everything they do, they were, they were, everything they did, they were theological. They understood that they were theological beings that had to reflect on their creator, Jesus Christ. They were self-consciously theological. And this is the thing that just warms the heart of a Presbyterian minister. Because I want you to be self-consciously theological. Here's the reality. You are a theological being and you are thinking about theology all the time. You are doing theology all the time. The question isn't whether or not you are a theologian. The question is whether or not you are a good theologian or a bad theologian. You are a theologian. 
Most of us are just terrible theologians. Not because we don't know the right stuff. I guarantee you most of you could go through and answer a wonderful uh, quiz and, and do all the trivia on the Bible and just get it all right, and that would be wonderful. But that doesn't mean you're a good theologian, just knowing stuff. The reality is, is that these people thought about Jesus Christ and gloried in him more than anything else. They didn't care or even didn't really have the knowledge of the Bible that we have. But they were good theologians because they thought about Jesus. What did they think about? They explicitly thought about his return. When was the last time you thought about Jesus' return? There is going to come a day when he will come. Now, they thought it was an imminent return. Let me just tell you, it is an imminent return. We just don't know how imminent it's going to be. Jesus will come back, and they thought about that, and they lived their lives accordingly. They lived their life like he was going to return. They thought about Jesus, their Savior, and they were ready to be with him. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to be with Jesus? What about you? Do you think about Jesus? Do you think about his return? Again, not just the circumstances surrounding his return, but do you think about him and what it's going to be like to behold your Savior face to face, to be done with the mess of this world? Do you live your life accordingly? Do you think self-consciously, theologically, meaning do you think about Jesus? Or is your life so wrapped up in yourself that you are the center of the world? The, the thing that made Paul proud about the Thessalonians is that they thought about Jesus. They loved Jesus. They wanted nothing more than Jesus. Well, none of that matters if what Paul says here in verse 10, to wait for his son whom he raises from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Thessalonians knew that they had been delivered from the wrath to come. And they gloried and, and reveled in Jesus Christ. Have you been delivered from the wrath to come? Is Jesus truly yours? In the Lord's Supper today, we have a wonderful opportunity to be reminded of our union with Christ. You know, and in this, we're not... I'm going to have an opportunity. I'm going to invite you to the table um, because Jesus invites his people to the table And that invitation is ours, not because of our righteousness or of our goodness. Uh, It doesn't depend on whether or not you, you know for certain that you're a believer or not. The only thing that matters is, are you in Jesus Christ? Is he yours? And we have a wonderful opportunity to have that proclaimed to us again in the Lord's Supper here today. Let's pray and ask for Jesus to help us in this. Let's pray and thank him for this word. Pray with me.